0: Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schack. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelisabethton.org. Religion for Life is co produced by WETS FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC FM on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. I've been doing a series of programs on the future of faith or the future of religion. Had some exciting thinkers, uh, movers and shakers in the religion field. Uh, for Everyone from strong believers to atheists all talking about uh, what religion is about, where it's going, where it's headed. And we continue that great tradition today. My guest is Peter Rollins. He's a widely sought-after writer, lecturer, storyteller, and public speaker. He's also the founder of ICON, spelled with a K, a faith group that has gained an international reputation for blending live music, visual imagery, soundscapes, theater, ritual, and reflection to create what they call transformance art. Uh, Peter gained his higher education from Queen's University, Belfast, and has earned degrees uh, with distinction in scholastic philosophy, political theory. His Ph.D. is in post-structural thought, and he's currently a research associate with the Irish School of Ecumenics in Trinity College, Dublin, and is author of several books, How Not to Speak of God. The Fidelity of Betrayal Towards a Church Beyond Belief, The Orthodox Heretic and Other Impossible Tales, Insurrection, and his latest, which uh, we're going to talk about today, uh, The Idolatry of God, Breaking Our Addiction to Certainty and Satisfaction. Uh, He was born in Belfast, currently resides in Greenwich, Connecticut. His website is PeterRollins.net. Peter, welcome to Religion for Life. Hi there. It's great to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, You live now in Greenwich, Connecticut, but home is is Belfast. Is that where you grew up? It is indeed. Um, I miss it a lot. I've
1: been in America for three years now, but um, I get back to Belfast as many times as I can.
0: You know, Belfast is uh, almost an icon of uh, religious intensity and struggle between groups. Did you grow up religiously? Um, I grew up not, not within a, uh, it was Anglican, loosely
1: Anglican, but I didn't go to church every week or anything like that. However, I did experience the division, of course, that was in Belfast. And in fact, a lot of my work, I think, has been influenced by coming from a society where religious difference um, plays such an important part and where people are willing to die and to kill for
0: identity. And so in response to that, to, to create a theology I, where people might be willing to, to have that intensity but work together, I suppose, would be part of the project, wouldn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I used to see how whenever we encounter someone with different beliefs to ourselves, we would either try to consume them. So if, if you have different beliefs and practices to me, I'll try to make you like me, you know, look like mm-hmm. me, think like me. And if I can't consume you, um, I want to vomit you out. I want to get rid of you. Um, You know, push you out of my community. Or, you know, a little bit more progressive, I might want to tolerate you. As long as you don't show me your weird beliefs and practices, uh, we can hang out together or can work together. Or finally, um, we can sit down and, you know, we can realize that beneath our differences, there's this commonality. And, And I learned that all of those were problematic because in all of them, I'm right. In the first three, I'm right and you're wrong. And in the fourth, we're both right. Let's have tea and biscuits. Um, And what I was interested in uh, from my experience at Belfast was how do I create a space where I encounter someone who has different beliefs and practices to me? And at first I think they're monstrous and weird. And then I look at myself through their eyes and I realize, oh my goodness, I am monstrous and I am weird. My beliefs and practices are a little bit bizarre and maybe I can learn something from the other.
0: And that's what you did uh, when you created the, the community of Icon, I K O N. Can you tell us well, a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, Icon, um, it, it, we had four actual contemplative practices. Uh, one of them was called the Evangelism Project, where we went out to be evangelized by other people. Um, so mm-hmm. we would go, say, to the Islamic Society or the Humanist Group. And uh, the evangelism wasn't so much that we thought we would become humanists or Scientologists or whatever group that we visited, but rather that we would ask the group, what do we look like to you? And that's where the evangelism took place, because we would see things about ourselves through the other person's eyes that we hadn't seen before. Uh, We also have a group called Atheism for Lent, where we read all the great critiques of Christianity and religion and God. Um, in order not to judge them, but to let them judge us. And there was a couple of other, other practices. But ICON, in general, was a space where once a month a group of us would come together and we would lay our identities at the door. There wouldn't be any you know, Catholic or Protestant or liberal or conservative. And we would come in and using art, music, poetry, uh, we would interrogate ourselves. We would attempt, we would attempt to uh, encounter the other person to challenge what we believe and to be instruments of each other's further transformation. Um, And uh, so as not to offend anybody, we try to offend everybody. So whatever (laughs) you were, we would try to probably offend it at some point um, in order to create a space where we were ruptured and we could think about things in a different way.
0: And the people who participated in that uh, would be people, sometimes they might be involved in church, but they might not be, right? They weren't necessarily at a churchy kind of thing.
1: No, yeah, it was a theist and atheist, uh, agnostic. It was people who went to church every week and people who would never darken the doors of church. And actually, I mean, one of the main purposes of ICON, uh, which I deal with in the book, it was to help break us of our addiction to The idea that there's something that can make us whole and complete. It's a, you know, basically Mm -hmm. an existential kind of reading of Christianity that says we're all out there trying to find something that will satisfy our soul. and, And everybody's offering us answers. You know, people are saying, consume this product, you know, marry this person, look this way, have this house, worship this God, and you'll be happy. And uh, it's like the world is a huge vending machine and everyone has their product in of what will make you happy. And the church has just gone along with this and God has become a product that guarantees happiness and satisfaction. And what I argue is this is the very thing that makes us dissatisfied. We're always chasing something um, over the next hill that will make us happy. And we're like a wily coyote chasing the roadrunner. Uh, if, if we don't catch the roadrunner, we're unhappy. Uh, or if we do, we realize we're unhappy. In fact, that's why Oscar Wilde said there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. And it's getting what you want. Mm-hmm. Because if, if you think it's a million dollars, will make you happy. If you actually finally get it, you, you might have a better lifestyle, but it's not going to satisfy your soul. It's It's not going to rid you of your ghosts. See, the people who are listening to this radio show at the moment, we all know we're full of ghosts, we're haunted houses. The people we've hurt, the people who've hurt us, the people that we've loved and the people that we've lost. And so in Icon, we try to say, you know, we have to give up this pursuit of something out there that will make us satisfied and, and embrace the depth of what we have, the depth dimension of life itself and learn to love uh, life without having to always run to the next thing
0: it's kind of like be in uh with what really is i, I that's going my phrase of as i read your book it's uh, yeah go ahead and and let go of those desires you have and accept what really is real
1: yeah i mean it sounds paradoxical where you say i have to give
0: up the, the pursuit of something that will make
1: me whole and satisfied. Mm-hmm. That sounds depressing. But what I'm saying is, and people say to me, you know, Pete, you're trying to make me depressed. And I'm like, no, I promise I'm not trying to make you depressed. I'm telling you that you already are depressed. You just don't know it. Um, because the strange the strange thing is, so many of us are, are depressed and we don't even know it. We mm-hmm. we keep ourselves so busy. we We are always going out. We're always working hard. We're, we're always surrounding ourselves with noise because if we were quiet, even for an hour, we'd realize that there's so many things we're dealing with. Um, and so we keep ourselves busy. But my argument is we've got to lay that down, embrace our brokenness, face up to the things uh, that have hurt us. And, and the truth is when we do that, we won't get depressed. We'll actually start to overcome depression and find out what it means to really say yes to life.
0: Peter Rollins is my guest uh, on Religion for Life. He's the author of the new book, Idolatry of God, Breaking Our Addiction to Certainty and Satisfaction, and Breaking that Addiction to Certainty. How How is certainty an addiction?
1: Well, whenever you're young, you know, a little child and a little boy, say, is crying, we say, oh, you're so brave. You know, you're such a little soldier. Or a little girl dresses up in a princess outfit and we say, oh, you're a beautiful princess. Or, you know, we race a child and go, oh, look how fast you are. Now, the truth is, the kid isn't a brave little soldier. He's crying, you know, brave little soldiers don't cry. And mm-hmm. the girl isn't a princess. You know, she's wearing a, a $6 target dress. Princesses don't wear wear that. Uh, or And children aren't fast. They're not strong. They're weak. But we, of course, tell these stories because they give a child a certain sense of mastery, a certain sense of independence and strength. And they're very important. But my argument is, as we grow... We continue to tell ourselves stories that give us a similar sense of mastery. We tell ourselves religious, political and cultural stories that, that do pretty much the same. That tell us why we on this side of the river are right and the people on that side of the river are wrong. That tell us why we are great and other people aren't. And with a child, the child believes the story but, of course, they also know it's not true. There's a certain sense of, like, a suspension of disbelief. You believe the story, but, but you also know that it's just a story. My concern is when we forget that and we start to fully embrace um, religious, political ideas when really all they're doing is covering over our brokenness and unknowing. Now, the trick for me is we kind of know this. Late at night over a few drinks we may admit to ourselves that, you know, we don't really have the answers, that this is something that makes us feel good. You see, my argument isn't that we should doubt or ask questions. My my issue is that we're already full of doubts and unknowing. That, um you know, for example, in a church, they may say, you know, God takes care of everything. We have absolute certainty that God looks after us all. But really, we still put a lightning rod on top of the steeple. In other I, I, words, even yeah. then... We kind of know that maybe that's more of a psychological belief, something we hold on to because it makes us feel good. And what I'm arguing is actually we need to be honest about those doubts and insecurities and that unknowing. And and, and church should be more like an AA group, basically. A place where we admit our doubts and our brokenness in a community of grace. And that's the kind of place where real transformation can take place.
0: You know that... Uh project that you have going on of Atheism for Lent. I know you've received some pushback uh, on that. And is that pushback also related to a little bit of this fear of, gosh, if I let go of that, if I go there, uh, that fear of certainty, that fear that something bad might happen if I go to the place that's really honest in my heart? Absolutely.
1: I mean, this journey is, is a terrifying one. Um, the journey of letting go of what we think will make us whole and complete and, and the story that we tell ourselves that makes us feel certain and secure, this is terrifying. I mean, I get pushback from my work, but I push back on myself. I mean, uh-huh. I, can fe- I can feel the fear of that journey in myself. The only thing I can say is what I've, I've discovered in my own life is that as I let go of certainty and satisfaction, I actually um, find myself in a much better place. Uh, that the more I seek satisfaction, the more dissatisfied I become. And the more I seek certainty, the more uncertain I become. Strangely, the more certain people are, the more a community has to push somebody out, not because they disagree with the person, but because that person brings up their own internal disagreements. If if I can use an example, there was a religious leader called Rob Bell who, who wrote a book called Love Wins. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, what was interesting to me was uh, there was a segment of the conservative evangelical community that really reacted negatively to the book. Now, the question is, what did that mean? Um, Did it mean they just disagreed with it? Well, not really, because what did the Amish think? I mean, the Amish wouldn't have agreed with the book, but they didn't say anything. You know, if I disagree with you, I just disagree with you. If if a group vehemently disagrees, they get really angry, they threaten, they they foam at the mouth. That doesn't show that they disagree. That shows that what they're reading um, is bringing up something deep within them that they haven't brought to the surface. So my argument is, you know, often uh, the more certain we want to be, uh, actually, the more we just repress our doubts and all our unknowing. And they actually come out in negative ways. Hatred of ourselves, hatred of others, uh, overeating, over drinking. Uh, It's just devastating the results.
0: And you've been called uh, uh, a pyro theologian. Uh, what what does a pyro theologian do?
1: Well, yeah, basically, pyro theology um, is a term that's being used to describe this type of serious interrogation of our lives. So, pyro coming from the idea of fire to burn. Because um, this, this is kind of like a type of burning theology. Mm-hmm. It's not a theology that is interested in belief. It's not a doctrinal theology. It's a theology that's interested in why you believe what you believe, how your belief functions. And um, if I can take an example, uh, two people can go jogging. One person, however, is jogging because they want to keep fits. They They feel healthy because they jog. And the other jogs because they're terrified of dying. So the same activity comes from two different places. In the same way, you might believe everything I believe, and I think your beliefs are great. But actually, you could believe these things for the worst possible reasons. Or alternatively, you could believe different things from me, but your beliefs um, bring you into a, a deeper experience of your humanity and your brokenness, um, and they make you you know, a more beautiful person. So parotheology breaks down what we believe and gets us to ask, how do our beliefs function? Get us to look at our lives and look at, at, at basically, not whether life exists after death. You know, if people think religion's all about life after death. Mm-hmm. But this is about a more interesting question. It's about whether life is possible before death. Whether we can really love and embrace the depth of life here and now. I mean, imagine this. Imagine I could extend your life forever, but that you didn't enjoy your life. Oh, yeah. Well, then I'm not a god. I'm a devil. Mm -hmm. If I give you eternal life, but don't give you the experience of depth in life, that's a curse. What I want to do and what theology aims to do is help us experience and invite us into a depth dimension, a sacredness of life.
0: Peter Rollins, my guest on Religion for Life, the author of uh, The Idolatry of God, Breaking Our Addiction to Certainty and Satisfaction, and as I'm hearing you talking, I'm thinking this isn't just about church, this isn't about religion, this is about human beings and life, because um, uh, we've narrowed it so much uh, to be about certain doctrines that have been fixed in the past, but you're talking about uh, what it means to live in community and, and authentically with uh, ourselves and with our neighbors. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the reason why I connect this with Christianity
1: is a very simple reason. But is in, in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, the story opens up with two people in a, in a forest and they can do whatever they want. And then into this forest comes this prohibition where there's a voice that says, no, you can't eat of this one tree. And uh, you immediately go, well, what makes the tree magical? Why can't they eat of that tree? And of course, any parent knows the answer. It's the prohibition. If you say to a child, if a child says, I want a puppy for Christmas, and you say you can't have the puppy, suddenly the child really wants the puppy. (laughs) The more Mm -hmm. you say no to the child, the more the child really wants the puppy. And um, what I I see at the very beginning of the the, the biblical text is the story of our humanity, that we feel separated from things. And the more that we can't get them, the more we desire them. So we want money, we want fame, we want uh, you know a bigger house, we want a bigger car, and we, we become obsessed. And, and I see this repeated in the crucifixion, where there's a, a temple with a massive curtain. Again, there's a place called the Holy of Holies, which is the place where the thing that you really want is behind this curtain. There's the curtain, and then there's this place called the Court of Gentiles. And in the crucifixion, we see this curtain ripped in half, and we see the thing that we really want doesn't exist. There's nothing behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. We realize, oh my goodness, the thing that I'm pursuing, the thing that I think will make me happy doesn't exist. And then, uh, which is I think the good news is, is um, and by the way, the good news of Christianity for me is not life is great and you can be happy, but the good news is life is difficult and you don't know the secret. So the good news is, oh my goodness, the thing that I'm chasing doesn't exist. But then there's a third part which is where uh, we realize that, that the divine, the sacred, exists already in our midst, where the hungry are fed and the thirsty are given water, where food is communion and a walk is a way to uh, experience the beauty of nature. And we find then that while we've lost something that we're chasing because we think it will make us happy, insofar as we can embrace life, We find the divine, and we find a depth, whether or not we're theists or atheists or whatever we believe.
0: You know, the book is called uh, The Idolatry of God, and that was going to be my question. If an intrusive uh, radio host uh, were to ask you, uh, do you believe in God, or what does God do, or where can God be found? um, You might have just answered it in that last statement. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, for me, Christianity and, and religion at its best is about faith. And faith for me is not about belief. Um, if I can make this, I mean, often today people think, oh, faith is about believing something without sufficient evidence. That's what people think, you know. Mm-hmm. I have faith that there's some, you know, wine in the fridge, so somebody might have drunk it, but I've got faith it's still there. But I want to argue, you know, that faith is a very different type of thing. Imagine that you believe the world is meaningful. You believe that everything is meaningful, but you do not love I would argue that you cannot help but experience the world as utterly devoid of meaning. But if you love, even if you believe the universe is meaningless and everything will turn to dust and darkness, you cannot help but experience the world as utterly full of meaning. And that's what faith is for me. Faith is this experience in which life is just wonderful. Life is, is worth living for and dying for. Life, uh, faith is what gives life a certain texture and depth and beauty that um, we, can, um, we can miss in the pursuit of, of the next best thing. And that's what I think Christianity and what, no, what life, what we are called to, whatever we believe and whoever we are, is to somehow experience that beauty and depth dimension to all of life.
0: What would you say to someone who uh, is, is suffering or has suffered a great loss? How, how do they approach life and God in that way?
1: Well, yeah, this is the big thing. You know, what do you do when you know, someone has died or when you're suffering in some profound way? I mean, there's there's two possibilities. The first is, say someone close to you died. You can go out and get drunk. Go out, party, try and forget, you know, take some drugs, do, just do whatever to, to, to forget the pain. And that's fantastic for a night. But you come back and the next day the pain comes back and it comes back real hard. And that's why you have to go out and drink again. And that's why Freud, by the way, said alcoholism isn't a problem, it's the solution to a problem. You know, it's there to try to get rid of a problem. However, it doesn't work, hence you have to drink and drink and drink. But then contrast that with going and hearing, say, a poet or a singer-songwriter. Kierkegaard, the philosopher, once said, what is a poet? A poet is someone who screams and cries in agony, but whose lips are so formed that when they cry out, beautiful music is formed. So when we say to the poet, sing to us again, we are really saying, may new disasters befall you. (laughs) But Hmm. if I go and hear a singer-songwriter, they put my pain into words. I connect with the suffering, but in a way that I can handle. And I begin to do the work of mourning. And what I'm arguing is often the church today is like the drug the drug den or the the place where you get drunk because you go and you sing songs and everything feels good for an hour and then you leave and you're back in your pain and you have to go back the next week but I'm arguing for places that are more like the singer songwriter where you go and your own suffering and brokenness is reflected back in the music and the art and the liturgy not so that you despair but so that you face it and begin to work through it I mean, imagine a family are sitting around a table every Sunday, but one of, the, one of the children dies. If they don't talk about death, that suffering remains. It's only as one person around the table says, you know, I miss Johnny. Someone cries and then someone tells a funny story and someone else laughs. And as they talk it through, that's not when they're, they're enslaved by the suffering. That's when they begin to work the suffering
0: through and rob it of its thing. That's beautiful. Thank you. Peter Rollins, um, author of The Idolatry of God, Breaking Our Addiction to Certainty and Satisfaction, has been my guest on Religion for Life. Uh, wonderful book. Please check out his website, net. Peter, we just have about a minute left. Uh, anything we didn't cover? Any last word, last message you'd like to offer? Uh, no, maybe I
1: should say that if you buy my book, Certainty
0: and Satisfaction is Guaranteed. <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> there <laughs> you go. You'll be certain.
0: <laughs> Definitely not. Thank you, Peter Rollins, for being with me on Religion for Life. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Thank you. After this interview, Peter stayed on Skype with me. I hadn't intended to ask that last question about grief and loss. I just felt the need to do so at that time. It was personal for me. Even though this was the first time I had ever spoken or communicated with Peter, I felt a connection with what he was saying. After the interview, I shared with him that I had lost my 25-year-old son in the summer of 2012. I broke down and I wept. Peter stayed with me. I share this with you because Peter's reflections that he shared in the interview are the first that have validated my experience regarding faith and my grief. His words felt honest and real. I'm not saying Peter's approach to faith is correct or for everyone or or for anyone else for that matter. But I share with you the importance of being and feeling validated and understood. This program airs around the time of Easter, a time of new life. And my wish for you, wherever you are, is that you find that which validates your experience and that you don't settle for less. The depth of human experience is larger than any box of belief. And I hope that you find that which speaks to your depth. My name is John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find information about programs, links to podcasts and other reflections at my website, religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.